Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us stand for our call to worship, which we'll read responsively from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, my soul. Who forgives all your sins? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who satisfies your desires with good things? Let us now unite our hearts by singing together, This is my Father's world, on page 21. May be seated. Well, welcome in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are grateful that you have decided that you are joining us for worship um, this morning, whether that be in person or online, and um, we trust that this service will be a blessing to you. Um, please be aware that on, I believe it's Sunday, September 4th, if I have my date right, we'll be having a combined service at 10.30 a.m. outside by the pavilion, and we'll be joining together with Watershed Infusion on that morning. This morning, our reading from the Heidelberg Catechism comes from question 25 on the Trinity. And the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit?
Amen. Amen. Let us unite our hearts as we sing together, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. to be here this morning. Um, in case you're not familiar with me, my name is Dee Stahl and I am the Congregational Care Coordinator here. So I'm getting to know a lot of you and it's good to be here again this morning. Will you pray with me, please? Hear these words from Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and sing joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is everlasting, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. Our Father in heaven, how majestic you are, and we rejoice in you as our Savior. We can Consider all you have done for us, and it is such wonderful news. We are amazed by all that you have established for us as your children. You are a God of all-encompassing love, 
a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God of wisdom, a God of encouragement. Hallowed be your name. And you're a God of goodness and mercy. You are our help and strength in all the times of our lives. And Father, this morning we offer you our concerns. There are so many in our community who are dealing with illness or waiting for surgery, those who are navigating new diagnoses, those who are grieving loss, others who are experiencing hardships due to rising costs, families who are navigating troubled relationships, and those who are suffering in quiet with many things that are unknown to us. Father, whatever the circumstance, give them your love when they need to be loved. Lift them up and support them when they need your support. Comfort when they need comfort. Encourage those who are brokenhearted. And put each of us in the right place at the right time to be your hands and feet. Be with those who are enduring hostility and war. Father, we pray for peace in this world. Let anger and hostility give way to harmony and justice in a world torn by conflict. And God, you've created the church. You created us to be in community together as three worship communities across this campus. And you entrusted us with the task of carrying out the work of your kingdom. Through your Holy Spirit, open our minds to your wisdom and our hearts to your love. Guide us to hear your word, the message that was laid out specifically for us today. And now, Father, hear our prayer as we pray together as one church, as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Good to be here. Thank you for continuing. Are we doing okay there, Charlie? Is it coming through okay? This is on. Yeah? I'll just shout louder. How would that be? <clears throat> I've been told my voice carries. So, how are you doing? You got it? Oh, there. Is it there? All right. I appreciate the fact that I have an opportunity to be here with you for worship again. This is our church. Almost 30 years ago, 28 to be exact, I first met Wayne Brower. It was a bit of a shocking experience, you know. 
because he said, uh, hi, this is Wayne Brower. I said, well, I thought I was Wayne Brower. <laughs> and indeed, we are one and the same, kindred spirits, good friends, and he still sits in the same space. <laughs> Never changes, does it? But I appreciate the fact that this is our congregation, our home church. Uh, you're my calling church for my work in ministry at, at Hope College and Western Theological Seminary, and uh, the journey has been a good one. I was able this uh, summer to teach two classes. Hope and Western are starting a new prison education program. In the summer, I was actually teaching two courses at the Correctional Facility in Muskegon, and that has been really a tremendous experience as well. And now we're getting ready to start the new fall seasons on campuses again. This is quite a weekend for uh, our family, my immediate family, because it was six years ago this weekend that my mother died. And um, the, her death was on Thursday, and her funeral was on Monday. The days lined up again the same, and today was the day of visitation. And so my siblings and I are thinking about that. My dad died 17 months later, and we lost two parents within that uh, amount of time. But there are little things that keep us constantly talking with one another. And my older sister phoned me this past week, and she said, Wayne, what was the first car that dad bought? Now, you would think that that would be one of the most immediate ideas that would jump into my mind. You know, none of us can remember what dad talked about as his first car. Uh, the reason it became important is because when dad died, uh, mom and dad didn't have a, a regular cell phone. Some of us know what a cell phone is. Some of us don't know how to get them off our ears, but you know, they're, or in front of our faces. But they didn't have a regular cell phone. They had a track phone, okay? Track phone is where you have to buy minutes. Anyway, through several deals, they'd gotten a track phone and it had 7,000 minutes yet when dad died. And 7,000 minutes, my older sister said, I'm gonna use those up. Well, these many intervening years, she still hasn't used up 7,000 minutes. And she was wondering how she, they changed everything. They uh, updated equipment and stuff like that. And now we have to get back in and sort of renew the contract or whatever it is. And one of dad's key questions for his identity, what was your first car? <laughs> I think we just lost 7,000 minutes. So it goes. But siblings are great, aren't they? I mean, siblings are wonderful. Siblings are, siblings, Sib siblings, yeah, siblings. <laughs> Are you the oldest person? Some of you in your families? Some of you have older siblings, had older siblings? Did your parents ever say anything to you like, why can't you be like your older brother? Or, how come you don't do things like your sister does? Can't you keep your room straight? Like, can't you work like that? What, are we going to have to have you around forever? Okay. Imagine that. And you go away and you feel to yourself, man, they think she's perfect. I mean, they think he walks on water. Now imagine that you're James. You know, after Mary had her miraculous birth that we talk about every Christmas, she and Joseph had kids, and the next one in line was James. Can you imagine being James? 
<laughs> Why can't you be perfect like your older brother? You know? Why don't you do the things he does? You know? You're always mess. He never messes up. Right? Well, that's the James we read this morning. Okay? The younger brother of Jesus became the leader of the Christian church. He became the head of the congregation and the extended ministry of the church in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. The other James that Jesus really appreciated, you know, James and John, he was killed early on. We read about that in Acts chapter 12, just as that ruler is trying to do the same with Peter. So James, the younger brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the church, and people look up to him. They, they recognize in him someone who's been with Jesus. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to James. And I can imagine what that conversation was like when James and Jesus got together and talked. Oh, wow, brother, I'm glad you're back again, and wow, and then hey, see you later, and wow, James is in charge of the church. People really respected James. Even those who were his antagonists respected him. He became the leader of the church, and we read about that in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas set up a new church up north in Antioch, and then they go on mission journeys, and one of the things that happens is that Gentiles become Christians or Jesus believers as well, and and it becomes a bit of a dispute. Hey, wasn't Jesus Jewish? Isn't the faith of the Bible a Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish faith? Definitely so. Why should Gentiles share in this? And if they want to share in this, shouldn't they have to become Jews too? And that became a point of discussion so that the first piece of our New Testament is Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he has to press that subject because in the churches of the first mission journey, Acts 13 and 14, the Jews are saying, yeah, you can come in, but yeah, you really ought to be Jew. Gentiles can come in, but you Jews should be, you Gentiles should become like us Jews, first of all, and you got to obey these things and do these kinds of things. And Paul says, no, it's not the way it is. And the discussion heated up so that eventually they had to have the first synod of the Christian Reformed Church in Jerusalem. They even had Acts of Synod, and you can find them in Acts chapter 15. And the big issue they had to resolve was, do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? And the resounding answer was, no, they do not. And that's why I'm in the church today. I am not a Jew. And it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. But James was the one who presided over that meeting, and Josephus, the early historian of the Christian church, tells us a number of things about James. He was such a good man that people respected him, even if they disagreed with him, and all of Jerusalem knew about James, and some people wanted to get him out of the way, and so in 62 AD, his enemies, and they were pretty harsh. They were few, but they were harsh. They got rid of him first by trying to push him off the pinnacle of the temple. You've seen pictures of Jerusalem and that tall stone area, and you can see somebody up there, and they could fall onto the rocks. Some of the reports said they pushed him off onto the rocks below. 
The report of Josephus says he didn't die, but he was still alive, and so they came, and they beat him with clubs, and they stoned him to death. And Josephus says that this kind of behavior precipitated the Romans taking down the city of Jerusalem a few years later and destroying the temple. That's what happened with this James, this James. He was a righteous man. After that council, that first synod of the Christian Reformed Church in Jerusalem in Acts 15, there's this little letter in Acts 15 that's sent to all the churches saying, Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. But James sends a longer letter. And you've been looking at the wisdom literature of the Old Testament these past weeks, and there's some powerful stuff there, like in Job, why do I struggle and suffer even if I pray and try to live a good life? And Psalms, how do I connect with God? And Proverbs, this kind of uh, love triangle between a young man and wisdom and folly, who in the Hebrew language are both feminine, and which one are you going to marry? And so we get this wife of great honor in chapter 31 when you marry wisdom and you live in the house of wisdom. And Ecclesiastes, is there anything under the sun that has meaning and a time for everything? You, you, you know these things. And they're all about practical wisdom, about working out your faith. And in the New Testament, this brother of James does the same thing, and it's really his letter. And I'd like to read a few parts of that from chapter 2 this morning, the last part of chapter 2, where James says to us, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a person claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save that person? Suppose a person or brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was it not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We know it, don't we? You know the name Charles Darwin, not a great one to speak in a Christian church, right? But Charles Darwin grew up in a Christian family. In fact, at one point, he was aiming to become a pastor. Can you believe that? One year, he was studying theology. He got interested in his uh, 
cousin's butterfly collection, and that led him eventually to go on some botanical trips, including with the uh, HMS Beagle around South America and check out things, uh, you know, all of the different far, flora and fauna. And he lost his faith along the way, and in part he lost his faith because he was observing the changes in the world around, thinking that they were designed in some way by a natural law to unfold, but he also lost his faith because he didn't see Christianity making any difference in people's lives or in society. And Charles Darwin, you wouldn't see him as a supporter of any Christian mission, except that he did. Charles Darwin supported a ministry of the Christian church from about midlife to the end of his life every single month. Why? Well, when he was traveling on the Beagle around South America, he observed that the laws of the jungle and the laws of evolution seemed to bring people, the strong would survive, the weak would not, and Christianity seemed to be a religion of weakness. But there were some people at the south end of South America that were really pretty fierce, the Yamana, the uh, Yagan, and others that were there. In fact, you know today, if you take a tour down there, as I did some years ago, that the area is called the Tierra del Fuego, the land of the fires, because from the ships in those stormy waters, they saw all the fires on the seacoast, and they knew that if they saw the people coming out, they were in trouble because these were fierce cannibals and they had taken down more ships than you can imagine. This was a place where the law of the jungle ruled and the harshest circumstances in the world caused only the fittest to survive. But what Charles Darwin found along the way is that there was a Christian mission that was established. It became known as Ushuaia, the town. I was there, southernmost city in the Americas, and it was started there by a young man without a name, at least a name of his own. You see, a man was walking along a street one night in Bristol, England, and he heard a baby cry. And he went to inspect, and there was a newborn child wrapped up in dirty rags, no parent around, took the child to his own home, raised the child as his own, and the child was found on St. Thomas's Day on the liturgical calendar, so they called him Thomas. And for a while, he took the name of the family, Despard, but when he got older, because he was found near a bridge, he decided to call himself Thomas Bridges. He had quite a facility for language, and he went with others to the Falkland Islands. There were some from the Yagan tribe who had been taken over there into a mission school, and he learned their language, and he went back with them. And what Charles Darwin later became amazed at is how this mission transformed the entire tip of what is South America. So much so that some years later, there was a ship sailing past in stormy waters, heading for wreckage on the rocks, and they saw the natives rowing out, and they begged God to take their lives because they knew they were going to be savagely, cruelly beaten and killed and eaten. 
But when the people came closer, they asked how they might help, and they saved everyone on board. And the reason they did that, they said, is because they were sisters and brothers in Jesus. The entire six tribes of South America became Christian through the ministry of Thomas Bridges and the mission there at Ushuaia. Charles Darwin said, if people can put their faith to work like that, maybe there's something to it. And from his midlife till his dying day, he supported that mission. James tells us that here, wisdom is not just head knowledge, it's not just an understanding of how things work, it's putting it into practice. And James gives two illustrations about that, both from Israel's own history. One person he points to is Abraham. Oh, we love Abraham. Abraham is the father of all things Israelite and Jewish. Not a person can claim to be a Jew today without drawing lines of ethnic connection back to Abraham. Abraham stands at the beginning. Abraham is the one from whom all of the Israelites, Hebrews, Jews are descended. Powerful thing. Abraham lived around 2,000 years B.C., about 4,000 years ago, and Abraham was quite a guy. It was during those nomadic times when different groups and tribes were on migration, and we read about that in history. His dad was one of those folks who was seeking a new place to live. And so Abraham was caught up with this. He traveled with his family, and while they were en route to who knows where, they didn't even know where, his dad died. We read about this in Genesis 11 and 12. And suddenly Abraham was the sole survivor, sole male survivor, overseeing this large company of servants and cattle and all of the women who were part of this, but the men made the decisions. And Abraham didn't know what to do, go back to the old country, back where we were, carry on, but to where? And that's when the voice came to him for the first time. Go, travel to the land I'm going to show you. You will own it. It will be yours, and your descendants will be there forever. It will be the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. And by the way, through you, I'm going to bless all of the nations on this planet Earth. So Abraham went on. And during these next chapters of Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25, we read about the story of Abraham. His name was changed from Abram to Abraham, his wife from Sarai to Sarah. And there were many things that went on. But here's what I want you to know this morning that connects with what James says. There are four times in these chapters that God makes a covenant, a relationship, a commitment to Abraham. 12, 13, 15. We'll put them right here, okay? 12, 13, 15. Each time God says to Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to do something great for you. He says, I'm going to give you land. He says, I'm going to give you a child. He says, I'm going to give you land and a child, 12, 13, 15, okay? What we know in the way that these things are framed in the book of Genesis 
is that each of these is like the typical royal grant. It's a gift. You've had that, haven't you? When people say, oh, you're so nice. I just like the way you do things. Here, have a million dollars. Happens every day, doesn't it? Seems to happen to some people more often than others. Privilege, right? Genesis 12, 13, 15, royal grants. I'm going to do this for you. What you find in the book of Genesis is that in each case, Abraham gives up what was given. Think about it. Genesis 12. Read the text. This is your land. Going to give it to you. Everything you can see, as far as you can see, it all belongs to you. Last half of chapter 16, or 15, or 12, I mean, what happens? Abraham leaves the land because it isn't sustaining him and his people. We read, like to read the first part. We don't often read the second part. Genesis 12, or 13, going to give you this land. What happens? Abram's off on a little journey. Other peoples come in, swoop up Lot and his substance, carry it away. Abraham has to go to war. You see all of this taking place, and Abraham says, I, I'm not so sure about this. Genesis 15, another one. God says, going to give you a child. Yeah, right. He's in his late 90s. His wife is near there. Looking for a population boom here? What did they do? Sarah says, I got a young slave. You know the story. Ishmael. Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, three times over. Royal grant, I give you, I give you, I give you. What does Abraham do? Kind of passes it by. Then, 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 then comes Genesis 17. And this time God uses different language. And God says, hey, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a child. But I'm also going to give you a different name. That means I own you in a good way. I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you a child, but I'm asking you to respond and say, you're in this thing with me. I'm asking you to follow me, to be my people. I'm asking you to make a commitment. I'm asking you to have yourself and all the males circumcised. And you know the result of that. Abraham's faith stuck. And he acted on it. And he lived it. And the biggest test of that came just a few chapters later in Genesis 22. When the voice 
came to him again. Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, full-grown young man. You called him laughter, Isaac, laughter. That's what Isaac means. I want you to take him and I want you to kill him. What? What? That makes no sense. What? And here's where the story gets really deep, and this is why James picks it up. The writer of Hebrews, right next door in our New Testaments, will say something similar in chapter 11. Abraham believed the promises of God even to the point of thinking that perhaps God would restore his son from the dead. Abraham believed and Abraham acted on those promises. Can you imagine the scene? Yes, sir, we're going to go make a sacrifice. Oh, good, good, good. You've done that before? Good, good, good. Yeah, you're going to take Isaac. Great, 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 great. You know, let's get some provisions ready. And so they do. Here's, here's the wood and here are the coals carrying those along because they don't have matchsticks or anything like that. Uh, here are the people who are going to cook the meals along the way, the servants and the animals that are going to carry their provisions. And they go a long ways up, 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 up. To a place that God is leading them and they get there and there Abraham says you guys can wait here and uh, the boy and I are going on alone he puts the wood on Isaac's back because Isaac is younger and stronger he carries the coals they go up 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 to the place where there's a plateau and this looks good they clear a little bit of stuff they gather some stones and Isaac says we've got everything ready but where's the sacrifice where's the animal for sacrifice and can you imagine what that did to Abraham's heart? Can you imagine what he said, what he thought? He said finally, well, Yahweh will provide, the Lord will provide. And finally it became clear even to Isaac that he was to be the sacrifice. And this was not unusual because peoples of that time believed that the gods demanded sacrifice, and what sacrifice is more significant than the sacrifice of a human life? You might as well do it. Go ahead with it. This is, if this is what it takes, I'm obedient to you, Dad. You make it happen. And Abraham was ready to let the knife come down when an angel stopped his arm. And suddenly they both realized that there was another animal right there, a ram in the thicket caught by its horns. And they finished the sacrifice. I'm guessing they never talked about it again. Oh, by the way, you know what the name of the place was? They called it Moriah. In the English language, we have an active and a passive way of talking. I read the book. Active. The book was read by me. Passive. 
in the Hebrew language, there's another way. It's a middle voice sometimes where something takes place that is both active and passive, and that's what Moriah means. It basically means God sees and God is seen. In this place where Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, even to the possibility that God would raise him from the dead, but it was the most important thing in his life. God was seen and God saw. And what did God see? God saw a man, a humble man, a weak man, a man like you and me, someone who struggled with life, who succeeded a good number of times, but failed many others. God saw a man. God saw a man. Often you wonder why tears come into your eyes and burdens seem to be much more than you can bear, but God is standing near. He hears your every tear. He sees your tears and he hears them when they fall. God weeps along with us and takes us by the hand. Tears are a language God understands. And the faith of Abraham was stronger than even Abraham could have known it in his younger years. He acted even when his sight told him a different reality. By the way, Moriah, Second Chronicles 3, David wants to build a temple for God because the people are settled in the land, but God says, no, it's going to be your son, a man of peace, Solomon, Shalom, who builds it. Where does Solomon build the temple? On Mount Moriah. You know what that means? A thousand years before David, this is where Abraham showed his faith. And a father and a son walked up to a place of execution together. And about a thousand years after David, on this very place, another father and another son would walk together. And this time, the son would stay on the altar of the cross and the sun would die as we talk about it this morning. Tears are a language God understands. One more story of faith James gives us. Rahab, the prostitute, he says. <laughs> Prostitutes. Man. Not exactly what we'd think about when we talk about prostitution. There's so much sex trafficking, human trafficking in our world, terrible thing. And it's often about women, but it's really about us men. Us men who don't treat our counterparts in life the way we should. It's a horrible thing. But Rahab believed, and she alone with her family was saved when Jericho was destroyed, when the Israelites came into the promised land, the land shown to Abraham. Now, when we think of Rahab, we think of someone who may have been a night walker, street walker. It's not the case. In those days, prostitutes were the females at the shrines of the gods of each locality. In other words, they were part of the system, the governing system. 
And there in Jericho, they knew who was in charge. The gods were in charge. They protected us. They cared for us. And this is an agrarian society, and so fertility is a huge thing. And men are largely responsible for the tilling and the animals and all of that. And so what happens is that in the spring of the year, the men go to the shrine to express their fertility, and that's why you have the prostitutes. She was an agent of the gods of Jericho. And that's where Rahab's testimony is astounding because in the middle of Joshua chapter 2, she says to those spies that she's lodged and hidden, she says to them, we know that your God is the true God over all peoples and all lands. Here's a priestess of other gods making testimony about the one true God of the Bible. And that's why Rahab is significant. In a world where there are competing values, competing gods, competing calls to service, she stands true and firm to the one thing that's there. This world was made by a creator, and the creator still cares. And by way of Jesus, the creator has made this world right. We celebrate it here. And so we come again today to the table, but we also come into our lives and into our societies seeking wisdom. Show me the way. Teach me how to live. And James says, yeah, you can get all the words you want, but you better act on them because action shows your heart. Fred and Lenny Craddock were traveling through eastern Tennessee one time. They stopped for an evening's meal at a place called the Big Bear Inn. It was a little bit off the highway. It had glass windows that looked out into the valleys of the Great Smoky Mountains. They decided to have a peaceful supper there together, and they enjoyed the meal. But while they were having their meal, wouldn't you know it, a tall guy, a big white shock of hair comes over, loud voice, probably deaf, he thinks he's speaking normal, but he's speaking really loud. And he comes over to their table, and he introduces himself, and he asks who they are, and they tell who they are. And then he says, oh, you're a preacher. Fred was a preacher and a teacher of preachers. So suddenly he didn't just see them and pass by. He grabbed a neighboring chair, and he sat down right between the two of them. And he, in his loud voice, he told them a story. He said, I was born back in these hills. And my mama was not married. And the reproach that fell on her fell on me, and I had a difficult childhood. Everybody was wondering, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? When we would go to town, people would look into my face to see if the resemblance was there. Who's your father? My mama would take me by the hand and drag me across the street, and we'd walk on the other side. When it came to school time, I would sit outside during recess in the weeds so that no one would see me. And when lunchtime came, I'd take my sandwich and go behind a tree. I wanted to be alone. All they had for me was ridicule and laughter. It was hard. When I was in the middle of my years in school, a new preacher came to town. And he attracted me, and he 
amazed me and he scared me. He terrified me. He had a booming voice and he shouted from that pulpit and people were talking about him. I had to go and hear him, but I didn't want to come at the beginning of the service because too many people would say, oh boy, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Who's your daddy anyway? So I would wait until just before the sermon and then I'd sneak in and I'd sit in the back and I'd listen and then when he was finished, I'd quickly get out. And that all worked until one Sunday when the women's choir decided to line up in the entryway so that they were going to parade in and have a song after the sermon. And I was caught, and I knew I was caught. I couldn't get out of there. And I knew my face was red. Somebody was going to clamp their hand down on my shoulder, and they were going to say to me, who are you, boy? What are you doing here? Who's your daddy? And sure enough, it happened. This hand came down on my shoulder, and I looked up, and it was the face of that preacher. And I was terrified. And he got down on his knee, eyeball to eyeball, looked me in the face. He said, hey, boy, what are you doing here? Who's your daddy? He said, no, wait, wait, don't tell me, don't tell me. I can see the reason. I see it now. I know who's your father. He stood up. He said, I can see you are a child of God. He swatted me on the behind, and he sent me out, and he said, now go claim your inheritance. And the big man stood up, and he walked away from the table. And Nettie said to Fred, who was that? And Fred said, Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper? He remembered the story, the autobiography of Ben Hooper, the unwanted child. That's what it was called. And he remembered that twice over. The great people of the great state of Tennessee had elected an unwanted bastard child to be their governor. Ben Hooper had claimed his inheritance and acted on his faith and became a leader among peoples. Who's your father? What do you believe? What are you going to do about it? Pray with me. We're grateful, Jesus, for bringing us into the family that we can share you as a brother and the Father as our Father. Bless us as we share in the intimacy of this brief meal that we may remember who we are and whose we are. In your name we ask it. Amen. One of the great privileges we have as the people of God, as part of God's family, is to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the supper that the Lord instituted um, before his, his death. This morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, we will, um, those of you who are gathered here, we will um, take it by passing the plate. Um, some of you may choose to use this. I'm going to go ahead and do it now so as not to interrupt the service, but everyone knows how to use these if you're using them. Anyone need instructions? 
Please remember, don't open it all the way or it will spill over you. If you are watching online and would like to partake with us, we invite you um, as we move through the institution um, to um, move to the kitchen if you've not already and to gather some bread and some juice or wine um, to partake with us. Okay? The Lord's Supper declares to us all that our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on the cross once and for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ with one true body in heaven at the right hand of the Father where he now sits and where he wants us to worship him. Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he said, this is my body, the new covenant in my blood. He said, for I've received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. He said, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. In the same way that night, he took the cup and he poured it out. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it and remember it to me. So whenever we eat the bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy or inappropriate manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. Everyone needs to examine himself before they eat of the bread and they drink of the cup. Jesus also said to me, and this is one of my favorite passages, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Because we know we are not our own, we're not free to come on our own terms, but we come because Jesus invites us. We come trusting in Christ, his death as my substitute, and his resurrection as a gift of life to me and to us. To not come trusting in oneself. Sometimes trusting in oneself looks like the resolve to do better in my strength rather than in the gift of his grace. Sometimes it's holding back of my failure rather than trusting in his resurrection. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gracious Father, by the promise of your written word and your presence of the Holy Spirit, meet us here, we pray as we remember your son, his death, and his resurrection. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that we come to this table. We come to this table as your adopted children. We come not because we are worthy, but we come because of what Christ has accomplished for us. We come as your children whose identity is found in Christ. We come as your children, as your children who are being transformed by your grace into the likeness of Christ. We come as your children asking you to sustain us so that we might follow you faithfully throughout our whole life. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll ask those who are serving to come forward at this time.
Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, eat of it all of you. As you receive the tray, I ask you as you turn to your neighbor, please say to them, the body of Christ broken for you, the body of Christ broken for you. And we will hold the bread until, we, um, until we've all um, received it. And then following that, Jesus took the cup and he poured the wine into the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink you all of it. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us take now. The bread will be passed. This is the body broken for you. And then as you receive the cup, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen. You may now serve. Are we coming forward? Oh, I thought we were passing the cup. I am sorry. I did not know we were coming. I invite you now to come forward and to partake of the bread and the cup. Thank you.
community now stand and sing together, I know not God's, why God's wondrous grace. Thank you for playing so wonderfully well. Thank you, people, for participating together with us in worship and for gathering around the Lord's table together where we proclaim the life and the death of resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you for all those who joined us online this morning and who will watch the video this week. As we go from this place, may God go before you to lead you. May God go beside you to befriend you. May God go behind you to protect you, and may God go beneath you to sustain you and carry you. Do not be afraid. Go forth in God's grace, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.